Hello and welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, March 8th. Amanda Borchel Dan here, joined by our military correspondent Emmanuel Fabian, U.S. correspondent Jacob Magid, and our New York reporter Luke Tress. A full house. Hello to you all. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. IDF raids on Janine yesterday have left several Palestinians dead, including, reportedly, the terrorists behind the killing of the two brothers last week. Manny will brief us. Jacob is here and will learn what was significant about the recent Aqaba summit, and Luke will fill us in on a troubling story of sex abuse and a fake Jewish identity out of Texas. But first, a word from our sponsors. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. And we're back. Manny, the alleged terrorist behind last week's deadly shooting attack that killed brothers Halel and Yagel Yaniv in northern West Bank town of Hurara was one of six Palestinians killed as Israeli troops raided Janine and exchanged fire with gunmen on Tuesday. The IDF and police said that forces came under, quote, massive gunfire during the operation, including from a number of Palestinian gunmen who fired at forces from an ambulance, at least allegedly. What else? else do we know about this operation that took place yesterday? So um, during the daytime, the the army and the undercover um, uh, Yamam units, that's uh, the police counterterrorism unit, uh, entered um, Janine and uh, they, they zoned in on this building where um, the alleged terrorists who carried out the Hawara attack, um, Abdel Hurasha, um, once they arrived, they began uh, the tactic known as pressure cooker, where they call on the people to come out. Uh, they then launched missiles at the building, shoulder launch missiles, uh, to try and flush the wanted person out. Uh, at that point, uh, people inside the building, uh, other gunmen in the area, began opening fire at troops. Uh, and ultimately, the the alleged terrorist was killed. The other five Palestinians were killed, were also members of terror groups. Uh, one, another one was a uh, Hamas member, so Khurasha was confirmed to be a Hamas member by both Israeli officials, by the Shin Bet, and as well as Hamas themselves, they confirmed he was a member. Uh, so a second member of Hamas was also killed um, during the fighting, uh, as well as a member of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and three members who were claimed to be part of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. The IDF sustained some injuries too. Can you tell us about that? 
Right. So three Yamama officers were uh, lightly, uh, well, one of them was moderately hurt, two of them were lightly hurt uh, in the clashes. Uh, they were hit by gunfire. One of them, the one who was moderately hurt, I think he was hit in the shoulder. Um, and they were taken to the Rambam hospital in Haifa. Um, the one who was more moderately hurt was taken by helicopter. He was rushed there. Uh, they thought his condition was worse, but he uh, he is uh, actually going to be okay. Okay. And what has been the fallout so far? So in response, apparently in response, I, w- I would say um, a rocket was launched um, from Gaza at southern Israel very early uh, on uh, on Wednesday, so uh, very early this morning. Um, the rocket, according to the IDF, did not cross um, the, um, the, the border, so it, it fell short in the Gaza Strip. There were no reports of injuries caused on, on the Palestinian side. Uh, and as of now, the army uh, is not believed to respond to this uh, to this rocket attack. But I understand that police are on high alert in Jerusalem. This is also tied to the Janine raid? Yes, definitely. So um, police are on high alert in Jerusalem and, and the area surrounding the West Bank barrier. Um, previously, when Israeli raids have happened in the West Bank, we've seen both responses in rocket fire from Gaza. And sometimes as well, um, Palestinians uh, will carry out an attack as some sort of revenge for uh, the killing of Palestinians in Israeli raids. So police are are definitely on high alert again, Um, also because of Purim, um, because that's happening now as well at the same time. So um, they're definitely keeping an eye out for a potential response to the the raid in Jenin. Manny, thank you for all of that and we'll say goodbye now. Thank you. Jacob, before we dive into other subjects, what do we know so far about the Biden administration's reaction to yesterday's raid in Janine? Yeah, it was kind of noteworthy because they were were specific to point out that as opposed to previous raids where they were kind of critical of the amount of high civilian casualties and kind of pushed Israel to maybe take steps to de-escalate tensions and and maybe not carry out these these very um, violent raids that we've been seeing, this time they were adamant in saying that Israel has a legitimate right to defend itself and didn't make any mention of the civilian casualties. We don't really know out of, it looks like all six of the those that were killed were members of different terror organizations in the West Bank. So I think that gave the U.S. an easier out to just focus on the fact that Israel has a right to defend itself. I think it was kind of noteworthy, and there was some pushback from Palestinian officials in Ramallah and abroad over some frustration that they felt that the U.S. was taking a too pro-Israel stance to this raid. Okay, thanks, Jacob. Staying with you, we've discussed last week's Aqaba Summit briefly on the podcast, but since nothing really seemed to come of it, we didn't do much follow-up. But in a new analysis that you're working on, you disagree with that and seem to state that, in fact, the mere fact that it took place at all is noteworthy. So tell us why. Yeah, I think it it really is easy to scoff at what happened because... within, I think before even the ink dried on this communique that the sides um, signed on to, there were ministers from Prime Minister Netanyahu to others like Batal Smotrich and Itamar Bengvir who very much dismissed and scoffed at what was agreed upon and saying that it was all, whatever happened in Aqaba stayed in Aqaba and that even though we agreed to these issues about to maybe halt settlement exp- advancements that's really, we're only agreeing to halt it for the amount of time that we're, we were going to halt anyway. So really this we didn't really commit it to anything and everything that's happened there stays there. But I think there is some, some worthiness to speak about what 
what happened a little bit behind the scenes and also what was even agreed upon publicly that we, I think, is uncharacteristic for this government. First of all, again, as you said, the fact that this happened in the first place is kind of noteworthy, given that in the previous government, they might have made some phone calls to Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas and even invited him to their homes as Defense Minister Benny Gantz did at the time. But every one of those meetings was framed as a security consultation. And there was a very adamant effort by members to preface this as saying this is not any sort of preface to the political negotiations of any sort. However, in this case, we had the most right-wing government in Israeli history, admitting publicly that they're meeting with Palestinian officials for political reasons. This was not just security officials there. It wasn't just intelligence officials, but there were actual politically um, oriented folks, including the director general of the foreign ministry on the Israeli side and the Palestinian civil affairs minister Hussein al-Sheikh on the PA side, in addition to obviously Egyptian and Jordanian and American officials that were there. And they made, yes, it's only temporary moves to halt on certain unilateral measures, but they also agreed to reaffirm the commitments that they had already made, including the Oslo Accords, which is incredibly unpopular to this government that is very much against the idea of a Palestinian state, which is what the Oslo Accords were about. So those kinds of things, I think, were noteworthy. And I wanted to speak with some of the participants that were there and about why, out of all governments, that this government, this most right-wing government that we've seen, is willing to still make these kinds of commitments. And basically, the, the feedback I got was that Prime Minister Netanyahu does understand the ramifications of the ongoing violence in the West Bank that we've been seeing over the past couple of months since the government was formed. And he's, rec he's starting to see the ramifications on his efforts to expand the Abraham Accords and to just um, solidify ties with the U.S., and if you look, I wrote, reported last month about how he's lost two very important trips that he was eyeing to the U.S. and to the UAE that he was hoping to travel there early on in, in his prime premiership, that he hasn't been able to go, and those trips are on the back burner. There's also the Nega Forum that I talked about, how that was supposed to be, uh, there was this ministerial meet that was supposed to take place this month that also has been pushed off indefinitely, that we don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I think he recognizes, given the slippage of uh, Israel international clout, I think he's really willing to, in this context, um, head to Aqaba, even if it's relatively limited in what he's agreeing to. I think that, that that's the context for him showing up or sending some, a pretty senior delegation from across the different ministries. Okay, really interesting. Obviously, the violence started before Netanyahu took power. We're going to move on. And turning to you, Luke, you've been covering the case and trial of uh, Saada Masoud, a pro-Palestinian activist who is recently sentenced to 18 months in prison for hate crimes against Jews. We're talking about in New York, of course. Why is this case significant and worthy of following? So Masoud was sentenced for a series of attacks against Jews in 2021 and 2022. It's, it's noteworthy because prosecution for hate crimes is pretty rare in New York City. Prison time is very rare, and this was a federal case, which is e even, even more rare. A lot of these attackers get off with what's seen as kind of a slap on the wrist without doing jail time or without serious punishments. Um, this has been a big criticism from the Jewish community and their allies that there's not really deterrence or punishment for these crimes. So this is kind of seen as federal prosecutors coming in giving this, this rare punishment to one of these attackers. And it's kind of seen as maybe a message to local prosecutors in New York City that they should be taking this case more seriously. Okay, great. Luke, thank you for that. We'll go to a short break. 
I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Now, Luke, this next story that we're going to talk about literally made me sick to my stomach as I read your detailed article in a case that even Hollywood wouldn't dream of. Authorities in Texas have charged a man with a slew of sex crimes after he apparently fabricated his Jewish identity, adopted nine boys, paraded his unique family on social media to hundreds of thousands of followers, and allegedly abused a number of children. There's so much more to unravel there, but tell us more about the sick mind that has been calling himself Chaim Nisim Cohen. So this started last month. A kid called into a podcast saying he had been abused by his dad. And it was an anonymous call. But the authorities, the podcasters called the police. The authorities were able to trace it back to this guy's house in Texas. So this guy, Chaim Cohen, had been presenting himself as a Hasidic rabbi who adopted nine Jewish boys. They did a lot of media interviews with Jewish media and local media in Houston where they lived. They had a huge social media presence, hundreds of thousands of followers, videos with millions of views. So then there's, he, his son called in, complained of sex abuse. He goes to, uh, he, he gets arrested. Turns out he was not Jewish. He had been claiming he was a Hasidic rabbi born in Brooklyn. Turns out he was born Jeffrey Vahill in Odessa, Texas, to a non-Jewish family, had been claiming to be Jewish for years, claimed all the kids were Jewish, none of them were, and um, he, he legally changed his name to Chaim Cohen about 10 years ago. He had some previous um, misdemeanor charges, a lot of bad stuff in his um, history. And um, the, so the big question now is how, how all this happened. Like, how was he able to get away with this for so long? How was he able to adopt nine kids? There were eight investigations by local authorities, didn't turn up anything. He was also charged with abusing a foreign exchange student in his home in 2019. Somehow he was able to just keep doing business as usual after that case. So there's still a lot of open questions and a lot of questions that authorities in Texas need to answer about this case. It, it Every single step of it just made me sicker and sicker to my stomach. And you just wonder what is going on here and how this man, a single man, was able to adopt all of these young children and continue doing this in his home, even after the investigation. I just really cannot understand why. 
Yeah, he also lied to foreign exchange programs to adopt to foster foreign exchange students in his house, one of whom he allegedly abused. So at one point in his four bedroom house, he has no income either, by the way. It's unclear how he was funding all this. At one point in his four bedroom house, it was him and 11 underage boys. And for some reason, this just went under the radar for all these years. And actually, the Jewish community in Houston were the only ones who figured out he was a fraud. And they made complaints and raised some red flags. But somehow, it's, it's still, he still got away with it for a very long time. Listeners, read the article. It's astounding. Now, Jacob, we have about one minute left. And I'd just like you to mention this forum that's going on tomorrow. Yeah, it's the first ever Jewish women's forum that's taking place at the White House. And even though it's a women's forum, it's it's bringing together uh, American Jewish uh, female leaders, I think over 70 of them from across the country. The headliner is Doug Emhoff, who's a man, but he'll be discussing his trip, recent trip to Germany and to Poland and the Biden administration's efforts to combat anti-Semitism, because that was the focus of that trip. And I think uh, Emhoff has been the token Jew that they bring around for these kinds of events, I guess, even though, he, again, he's he's a man. Um, but there's also going to be some other impressive female representation from the Biden administration, including Special Envoy to Combat Anti-Semitism, Deborah Lipstadt, and Anne Neuberger, who's a national security advisor for cyber technology, um, and a few other uh, representatives from the White House, which is known for its <laughs> very broad Jewish representation. Um, so it'll be, it'll be the first, ki- first form of that kind. And I think um, people are excited about that. Yeah, I definitely am. Okay, Jacob, Luke, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next time. Shalom. Shalom.